0: I appreciate you this afternoon for the word of our God as the church summarizes and confesses this in Lord's Day 16 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Lord's Day 16. And we need to confess that last week we cheated a little bit. We went ahead of ourselves and we dealt with the Lord's Day 27, 74, dealing with baptism, especially the baptism of infants. But this Sunday, we should get back on track, and that means that we, according to the schedule, are at Lord's Day 16, question and answer 40 to 44. And there the catechism reads as follows. Why was it necessary for Christ to humble Himself even unto death? Because of the justice and truth of God, satisfaction for our sins could be made in no other way than by the death of the Son of God. Why was He buried? His burial testified that He had really died. So, since Christ has died for us, why do we still have to die? Our death is not a payment for our sins, but it puts an end to sin and is an entrance into eternal life. What further benefit do we receive from Christ's sacrifice and death on the cross? Through Christ's death, our old nature is crucified, put to death, and buried with Him, so that the evil desires of the flesh may no longer reign in us. But that we may offer ourselves to him as a sacrifice of thankfulness. Why is there added he descended into hell? In my greatest sorrows and temptations, I may be assured and comforted that my Lord Jesus Christ, by his unspeakable anguish, pain, terror, and agony, which he endured throughout all his sufferings, but especially on the cross, has delivered me from the anguish and torment of hell thus far. After the proclamation of the gospel, let's sing together from hymn 34, the stanzas 1, 2, 3, and 4. Love a congregation of our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ, we begin this afternoon with a question. And the question is, what do you fear most in this life? And I realize that may sound like a a strange question. Why begin a sermon by speaking about fear? Why not rather be upbeat and optimistic? Why not ask, what do you enjoy most in life? So why the pessimism? Well, I guess the answer, in short, is because, in a sense, that is life. That's part of it. Of course, we can and we should speak about our joys, and, and naturally, there is much that is attractive in our daily lives and gives us joy and rejoicing, but there are also times, as Lord's say, 16 reminds us, when we need to deal with the other side, the dark side, you might call it. Ignoring it doesn't make it go away. Talking over it will not make it disappear. No, as we need to deal with the light, we also need to deal with the darkness, with our fears, with our insecurities, with the things that we dread and often worry about it. And let's face it, we all have them. We all have fears. Our young people go to school and some of them probably are afraid of failing their grades. Or they're afraid of not having good friends, or being picked on at school. Our business people and our work people are wondering whether their jobs are still going to be there next month, or whether their business is going to flourish, or whether it's going to be under all kinds of strain and economic pressure. And our families, too, are often filled with fear. How will our children grow up and mature in the kind of world in which we live? What will their future be like? Will it be anything like ours, or will it be vastly different because of all of the things that are coming down the turnpike? So the life you see, beloved, is, is full of fears, and we can mention many more. They're everywhere. They come in all kinds of shapes, sizes, and guises, and you might think that's depressing, disconcerting, and disturbing. Yes, and we can make it even more so. What is, in addition to those questions, what is now your greatest fear? What would you list among your greatest insecurity? What sort of things upset you more than anything else? Well, don't answer that question, but let the catechism instead answer it for you, and it does. For here in Lord's Day 16 of the Heidelberg Catechism, it it answers those questions very much in connection with the life and the ministry of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So what, according to the Catechism, according to Lord's Day 16, what are the great fears of life? What are the greatest fears? Well, look at this Lord's Day. The first fear is the fear of death. That's what question and answer 40, 42, and 43 deal with. The second is the fear of burial or being put into the grave. That's what question and answer 41 deal with. And the third fear is the fear of hell. Death, grave, and hell. Those three can be said to be among our greatest fears. Perhaps you can come up with some others. But I doubt whether they will be as great or as deep as these ones are. And of course, at this point, you might be inclined to say, well, so what? so you have, with the help of the Heidelberg Catechism, identified our three greatest fears, and what does that get us but more sadness, more gloom, more depression, more darkness? And that's true, except that I said that Lord's Day 16 deals with more than our fears. It also connects all of those fears to Jesus Christ, and that makes all the difference in the world. Separate those fears from Christ, and you will live a terrified life. Connect those fears to Jesus Christ, and you will live a life of comfort and hope. And so, I preached to you this afternoon on the following theme, Christ deals with our greatest fears, and we're going to see that our fear of dying is transformed our fear of burial is disarmed, our fear of hell is lifted. So our fear of dying is transformed, our fear of going into the grave is disarmed, our fear of hell is lifted. But a death and dying is a subject that still receives a lot of attention today especially in these COVID times. If you turn on the news at night on your television, every day you get told about how many more people have died in the province of British Columbia and maybe in Canada as well. And naturally, these are the kind of things that we like to pretend don't exist. We don't want to think about death. We don't want to talk about death, we, we want to ignore that grim reality altogether, but we realize at the same time that such an approach doesn't work. You know, as you grow older, your bodies tell you that they're no longer on the up-and-up scale. Your pains increase, your strength wanes, your tasks get harder, and your, your minds become dinner, dimmer, and your hearing wanes. In short, the signs of decline become evident in our lives if we live long enough. And along with those signs, there comes the awareness of our mortality. One day, my life here on earth, your life here on earth, will be over. Death is coming for all of us unless Christ stops and intervenes before then. Our bodies tell the story. And, of course, the obituary columns in the newspapers do the same thing, at least when there were newspapers. There still are, but they're not as popular anymore. One thing that some people love to do, or put that love between quotation marks, was read the obituary columns, and that reminds us of death in the world. But we don't need the obituary columns to tell us that. When I was still in active ministry, I would visit the Older members of the congregation, then they would often tell me that, you know, it may be a privilege to become old, but being old is often a burden. As the circle of friends and family shrink, as life becomes tougher, as things become filled with loss and emptiness. So death, how we hate it, how we, we long to avoid it, but we cannot. But then there is our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. When we turn to him, we see something totally different when it relates to death, and even something startling. And it's something that comes out in those words of question 40. Why was it necessary for Christ to humble himself even unto death? Now consider especially that word humbled. What does it tell you? What does it remind you about? Well, in the first place, that word is a reference to the coming down of our Savior. For remember that before he was born and before he was laid in a manger, where did he live? He lived in glory. He lived in heaven. He enjoyed perfect communion with the Father and the Spirit. And there was nothing humble about any of that. It was all light and splendor and glory unimaginable. But then Christ decided to do something. He, in consultation with the Father and the Spirit, decided to go down from heaven to earth. He decided to become man, human, of our flesh and blood, sharing our humanity. And there's more. For not only did Christ agree to come down and to become human, to live in our world and on our planet, he also decided to do this as a servant we touched on that a bit this morning and we do so once again this afternoon here he is the the pre-incarnate Son of God he is the Son through whom the Father has created everything actually he should come as King as the greatest King but instead however he chooses to come as a servant the Apostle Paul writes about this very beautifully in Philippians 2 when he says, Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. The Son of God became a servant. But of course, that's not the end of the story. For not only did Christ become a servant and come as man, but he also came as the suffering servant, as the servant who would take on death. Paul reveals that as well in Philippians 2 when he continues by saying, And be found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death. What that tells you is that Christ knew already before he was born what lay in store for him. Already then, he knew that he was coming down and becoming human, not to be adored and applauded. He's not coming down to simply partake of a change of scenery or to take a holiday from heaven. No, he's coming down to die. Death. Death. It's written all over his agenda. Death awaited him. Death was his earthly future. Oh, and then not just any death either. Because Paul adds something as well. He says, even death, even death on a cross. And sure, this is not just any death that we're talking about. This is not just about dying quietly, peacefully, in your sleep one day, breathing your last and giving up your spirit. Now, this is about death wrapped in, in agony and in shame and in, in torment and in scandal. The journey that Christ undertakes is a journey that goes from the highest heights of glory, to the deepest depths of shame and the anguish of hell. So we ask, why did he do it then? Why did he go through with all of this? Why did he give up so much glory and take on so much grief? And the answer, congregation, is to be found in answer forty. Where again, the catechism summarizing scripture says he did it to make satisfaction for our sins. He did it to deal with the justice and the truth of God. He did it because that was the only way to completely and utterly deal with our sins. Romans 8 verse 3 tells the story for what the law was powerless to do and that it was weakened by the sinful nature God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met. Do you hear that? Christ came to meet the righteous requirements of the law. He was truly showing himself to be obedient. Obedient to death and obedient in death. And what is now the consequence of all of that? How does that help us today? What does that do for us in the here and now? Why, beloved, for all of us who, who believe in him, this changes our death. It changes our dying. No longer is it a punishment for our sins. No longer does it mean time to pay up and settle accounts. No longer does it mean now you will get every punishment that you deserve and that you have earned. No, Christ has paid our debt by his dying. He's dying on the cross. Yes, and thanks to that dying and that death, two things. First, it means that when I and when you die, sin is ended. It's over. It's finished. It'll follow you no more. It'll hound you no longer. When we die as children in Christ, as believers in Christ, We are done, totally done with sin. And secondly, it means that death is no longer an end, but it has become an entrance. And I think you know the difference between the two. An end means you can't go any further. If you drive down a dead-end street, you can't go any further. There's only one thing you can do, and that is back up and turn around and go back. But an entrance means that you're going through something. You're going on forward. And if you ask to where, well, then the answer is into eternal life, into a life that never ends, never stops, and never dies. So what should this do for us who believe and What should this do for that first of our greatest fears and insecurities? Surely this should transform our life and our living. And it should give us hope and and confidence as we go through this life. It should enable us to, to face our death. It's a sure counterweight and a sure guarantee of eternal life, of resurrection, of the body and the life everlasting. You see, beloved, Christ Jesus has defeated that great fear we have of death and dying. But then, that's not the only fear, of course. There's also another fear closely connected with death and dying, and that relates to the grave. No one that I've ever talked to looks forward to the grave. Sometimes people look forward to dying, especially if they're suffering a lot, but no one looks forward to the grave. Every time we have a funeral and a burial, we are reminded that after death comes dust. Our bodies are laid in the ground, put in the earth, placed in the heart of the earth. That's where they're put and that's where they remain. And when you think of it, this is awful. You know, we were made originally to live, to enjoy life to the fullest and forever. Life is, is part of our very fabric, our very makeup. And what is death? And what is the grave but but an intruder, a dark, dreadful, disgusting intruder? You know, it's no wonder that we shiver when we see a coffin being lowered into the ground, into the grave. It's no wonder that it pains us to see the bodies of our loved ones being put into the ground. And yet, in the midst of that sadness, there too is Christ again. What happened to him? Question 41 says he was buried. What does that mean? Well, a couple of things come to mind. In the first place, you can say, as the Catechism does, that his burial proves and verifies that he really truly died. In that connection, you may remember Lazarus. Lazarus was a friend of the Lord Jesus, together with his sisters, Mary and Martha. But there is something strange about Lazarus when he gets sick and when he dies, and and strange in terms of the reaction of the Lord Jesus. Well, what is it? Well, we're told that the Lord Jesus is told that Lazarus is dying And we expect the Lord Jesus then to instantly get up and go to Bethany where Lazarus lived and spare him. But the Lord Jesus doesn't do that. It says that he he stayed two more days in the place where he was, was at. And then finally, finally he goes back to Bethany. And in the meantime, Lazarus has been in the grave already four days. And then we meet to ask ourselves, why does Jesus wait so long? Why didn't he come sooner? Why didn't he spare Mary and Martha all that grief? Well, the answer is to prove that Lazarus was really dead. It was to avoid all kinds of talk which said, oh, he's just fainted, or he's just in a temporary kind of coma or comatose state. No, it was to prove the reality of his death and to testify to the fact that when Jesus raised him from the dead, it was indeed a great, great miracle. So why was Jesus buried? Why was he three days and three nights in the heart of the earth? Why was he put in the ground like Lazarus? It was to prove that he really, truly died and that he was actually buried in the heart of the earth. In the second place, his stay in the grave did something else. That's not mentioned in the catechism. But it shows us that the old nature, the nature that we have inherited from Adam, the nature that causes us so much grief throughout this life, has been really and radically dealt with. The Catechism in answer 43 says, through Christ's death, our old nature is crucified, put to death, and buried with Him. In other words, every time you stand by the graveside side of a believer, remember not just that death is an entrance into eternal life, but also that, that Christ has dealt decisively now with the old nature. That he's, as it were, taken it into the grave with him. And that he leaves it there. He's carried it away. He's gotten rid of it. Its power is is gone, and soon its remaining effects will be over and finished. So the death of Christ, the grave of Christ, proves his death, and it proves the death of our old nature. And it also does something to our graves. You might say, in a manner of speaking, it, it changes them, it sanctifies them. For three days and nights, Scripture says Jesus lay in the grave. And what then? What came after? Well, after burial came resurrection, Easter, new life. In other words, in the grave, Jesus waited and rested in preparation for the day of resurrection. And now it's the same for us And for all believers, our graves are not just holes in the ground somewhere. No, our graves are resting places. That's where our bodies rest until the great day of the resurrection of the body. Our burial is but a prelude to resurrection. It's the calm before the storm of glory. It's the place of rest before the experience of perfect life and everlasting rest. And so, beloved, see the grave not just as a place to dread, but also as an introduction to the glory that is coming. Are you familiar with a symphony? Maybe you're not, maybe you are. But I'm thinking this afternoon of a symphony that you may not have heard of. It's by a Frenchman called Saint-Saëns. It's his third symphony called the Organ Symphony. I know you may not like an organ, but anyway, in this case, if you listen to it, you will like it. But this is a symphony that, like a lot of symphonies, it starts very slowly, very low, very softly. But as it goes on, the music keeps on building and building and building until it finally comes to a huge crescendo in which all of the stops are pulled out, all of the instruments are employed, and a mighty glorious sound is heard. Well, the grave. The grave is like the first note. Of a Sanson's symphony. It starts low, but it tells you that soon and someday the trumpet will sound, and the symphony and the sounds of eternal life will be heard in all their beauty and glory. Do not therefore fear the grave, because Jesus Christ has conquered it as well. And that brings us, beloved, to a third and final enemy, which is the enemy called hell. And it is perhaps the greatest, most terrifying fear of all. Whether it be the hell that the Lord Jesus describes so often in the New Testament, or whether it be the hell of Dante or John Bunyan or Jonathan Edwards, they're all terrible and they're all awful. There's no way to make hell no good. There is no more disturbing thing to do in this life than to dwell on the torments of hell. It has to be numbered among our greatest fears, Oh, to spend eternity in that place where the worm doesn't die and the fire always burns. But yet, thankfully also, when it comes to this most disturbing subject and fear, our Savior has also been hard at work. And what did he do about it? Well, in the early Christian church as well as in the Roman Catholic Church till today, there is the view that Christ did something about it by actually going to the place called hell. And when he came to hell, it's sad that he preached his victory over death there and over the devil, and that he then released the souls of all those departed saints who are being held there so that they could enter glory. Now that's a very interesting story But it's not true. The problem with that interesting story is that nowhere do you find in Scripture that it actually says that Jesus went to the place called hell. The closest thing you can find is Jesus preaching to the spirits in prison, which is then interpreted as hell, but if you look at it closely, it doesn't line up. The most that we can say, beloved, as the Catechism says so clearly, is that Christ suffered hell on the cross. That on that place, in that spot, he endured the agonies of hell. Remember his tears in the Garden of Gethsemane, tears of blood. Remember the mockery and the scorn that was heaped upon him. Remember the suffering and the crucifixion and the darkness that surrounded him and the forsakenness that filled him. Yes, Christ, he may not have gone to the place called hell, but he knew all about the sufferings and the torments of hell on the cross. Yes, and because Christ suffered all this on the cross. We don't have to experience it ourselves. As with so many things when it comes to our salvation, he has experienced it for us as our substitute, as our mediator, as our sin bearer, as our savior. And isn't that something that Isaiah 53 prophesied over and over again? He took up our iniquities, carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. My righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. He bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. You can hear what Christ has all done for us. All our sins, all our sorrows, all our tears, all our fears, he is carried away, satisfied, addressed, conquered. And so he has, as the Catechism summarizing Scripture says, he has delivered us from the anguish and the torment of hell. Beloved, you need not fear it. Christ has also taken care of this. He has defeated it, disarmed it. And the result is that also this third fear, this greatest fear of all, perhaps, has been removed. And so you begin to see, if you reflect upon it, what a Savior we have, what a Redeemer the Father has given us. Congregation, you and I, we need to walk by faith every day in the light of his glorious saving work. And when we do, we'll be lifted up above our fears, above our insecurities, above our tormented thoughts. Do you know what expression comes forth most often in the New Testament? from the lips of the Lord Jesus, as well as later on from the lips of his apostles. It's very simple. It's the expression, fear not. Time and time again, Christ comes to his followers, and he says, fear not. And here in Lord's Day 16, he comes to us, and he says, fear not. Don't fear death. Don't fear the grave. Don't fear hell. I have taken care of all of these fears for you so that you may live in the comfort of the gospel and the joy of everlasting life. Amen.